In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an incredible guest here with me. Gary, how are you? I'm doing just awesome, Pam. Just fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Underdog. We're going to have a lot of fun today and just hear about your story and your awesomeness. So I'm pumped. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) So I start off with the most loaded question known to man as my first question. What led you on your path to where you are today? What inspired your journey? Wow, that's a tough question. I've, I've been around for a few years. I've been a lawyer for over four decades, so it's kind of accumulation of experiences. But I think I got to a point in my life where my more important goal was serving others and helping others rather than taking care of my needs. And part of that was I got to an age where, you know, my fundamental needs were taken care of, but I developed a passion for being of service to other people. And when I do that, I feel fulfilled. I feel nourished. I feel happy. I feel complete. That's incredible, Gary. So question for you. What did you want to be when you grew up? I always wanted to be a lawyer. I followed in the steps of my brother. Uh, Went to the same schools, went to the same law school. He was a lawyer nine years older than me. I wanted to be a lawyer too. And that just was always my, always my plan. I um, was blessed with really good intelligence. Kind of a little bit of my story as a kid growing up. I came from a middle-class family. My parents were very generous in giving us good education, but I was very, very heavy. And for my age, I sort of stood out by being what some people call fat. I wore really nerdy glasses and I was extremely smart. And the combination of the three of them led to a lot of bullying, a lot of being picked on that really affected me throughout my life. And it, it's, bizarre to me. It's amazing how many years it took me to both identify that process and grow through it. And and I think that colored a lot of my actions in my early life. So I was driven to succeed. And I did extremely well in high school, college, and law school. In fact, I was number one in each of those classes. And I just had this passion to be as good as I could be to prove all those who called me Pugsley and Arnold and all these other names. I remember as a kid coming home and crying to my mom about how I was treated. And she would put out the usual euphemisms about, oh, but they really like you. You only pick on those you like and all those things. But I think that really affected a lot of of how I grew up. So I always wanted to be a lawyer and was blessed with the opportunity to kind of be any lawyer that I wanted to be. 
That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that, Gary. And in terms of your experience, I can relate to you a lot on the bullying front because I was actually bullied in middle school. Growing up, nobody believes me when I say this, but up until seventh grade, I was very reserved, very quiet, kind of really kept to myself. You know, I was always the different kid, right? Like at home, my life was different because I came to the US when I was five. And so my parents weren't, you know, they weren't the parents that were at athletic games and stuff like that. You know, they, they weren't, you know, when it was going home from school, I would walk home, you know, it wasn't like, you know, and then I'd watch everyone get picked up, you know, it's because your parents are hustling and whatever. So I was always, I always felt like the oddball kind of out, but words really do hurt, right? They really do. No matter what anybody says, I mean, you know, I can speak to that firsthand being bullied. I just remember, and like, to this day, I have the names like burned in my head of who it was that bullied me. And even though I've forgiven them and all that, it's like, you kind of never forget and you never forget how that made you feel even at that age, even though that was however many years ago. Right. So I appreciate you mentioning that because that happens throughout our society so much. And especially now with all this instant gratification of social media, things can get that much worse. They, they really can. I think people focus on, can focus on how many likes they get, how popular someone is. And we compare our secrets and our insides to other people's outsides. You know, they don't, <laughs> they don't put on social media the pictures they don't want you to see where they lose their temper or spill the spaghetti. They're putting up the picture of perfection. And I think that can actually, you know, increase that feeling of inadequacy or insecurity and a lack of authenticity in, in how we interact with people. Because, I mean, we all think social media is great. That's how you and I connected through my favorite platform, which is LinkedIn. But it, it has its downsides. It has its downsides. And um, I think you're right that I think a lot of folks on social media really can, can feel distraught because I don't look as good as that other person. I mean, look what they're posting. And of course, there's another side to their story, too, that doesn't get posted. Absolutely. And that's the whole reason I started this podcast, because I was so sick and tired of people looking, especially entrepreneurs in particular, you know, making it oh, make seven figures in six months. We all know that that is garbage, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Like it takes grit and hard work and all this stuff before you can get to the Lamborghinis and the private jets and all this, you know, awesomeness. But no, no, it resonated significantly when you when you mentioned, you know, regarding the bullying, because it really does affect you. It really does affect you. And how it kind of affects me now is I have a passion to help those who are underserved and underappreciated, who maybe haven't gotten the same chance, who maybe didn't have a chance to go to law school like I did, right. or who, who maybe grew up in a neighborhood that wasn't as healthy or strong or supportive as my family was. So I always kind of look out for those folks who I think I can be of service to who may not have a good support structure around them just to see if there's some way I can be of service. Absolutely, Gary. And another thing you mentioned was that you wanted to be a lawyer since you were young. You know, every single person that I've interviewed that is an attorney, lawyer, I've asked them, what did they want to be when they grew up? Uh, oh, lawyer. That's it. Now I didn't want anything. How do you guys know this at such a young age? That's a good question. I don't know. For me, it was mostly my, you know, mostly my brother. I think yeah, I like the concept of being of service and helping people. I kind of learned that the legal system isn't always as helpful, always a great opportunity of service, depending on what kind of law you practice. I sort of reinvented myself as a lawyer about 11 years ago. Mm. And I moved from doing kind of one kind of work to doing mostly family law. Mm. And, and my reason for doing that was partly business because I, I'm in a small firm that I've been running for 
a good period of time, but I had too many, too much dependence on too few clients. And it was more important to me to get diversity financially, but more important than that, I really wanted to help people. And I'm not a proponent of divorce. I don't encourage it. I don't try to make it happen. But when I have a client who's struggling, who feels overwhelmed, who feels alone, who feels like no one's listening to him or her, who can't see the solution, can't see their way out of the forest that they're in, are tired of all the nastiness and name calling and vic I like to help them. I like to paint a vision for them of what their life can be like. I like to give them homework to do, go to work, do a good job, be a great parent, go to the soccer game, root your kid on. Send me the stuff I need when I need it. And other than that, ignore everything else. Let me do the worrying, let me do the work and we'll get you there. And this is what it's gonna look like three to five years from now. It's not gonna happen overnight. Emotions change, feelings change. And I just find I can be of incredible service in this, you know, in this arena. And, and it fuels my sense of satisfaction to be, to be of help. And for me in the legal field, this is the best arena in which I can really help another person. And they may have been right or they may have been wrong. I don't care. But if they're fundamentally a good person who's just trying to get through it, I like to help them. That's incredible, Gary. And so when you graduated law school, did you go straight into the small practice or, or how, what was your trajectory like in the beginning of your career and versus where it is now? Yep. So I could have gone, I clerked in federal court for a year, which is sort of a plum job. I could have gone to what's called big law, one of the big firms. I don't really know exactly why I didn't do that, but that was never really a consideration for me. Every one of the other law clerks in my class went to a big law firm. I think partly at heart, I'm an entrepreneur from the beginning. I wanted to have some control over my existence. I wanted to work with the people I wanted to work with where I had some direct involvement. I also wanted to be a trial attorney and in a smaller firm that has a greater diversity of case, a greater volume of cases, you can often get a lot more trial experience. So I tried a lot of cases. So I returned to a small firm, but after a couple of years, I realized to be a trial attorney, I had to move to a different firm with folks I already knew. I was the junior guy then of four, but I learned to do serious personal injury work. I liked it. I was good at it. It's a very stressful profession. I mean, I guess everything is, I imagine your field has its own stresses too. If I was a star football player and I'm playing the Super Bowl, I'm pretty sure kickoff, I'm going to feel a little anxious, even though this is what I do and I'm like the best at it. So, you know, involves some stress, but I really liked, um, I like trial work, but then transitioned out of that into family law. I love that. I love that, Gary. And what, and what were some of your career challenges as well as personal challenges throughout your, your journey of life? So career challenges, I think you probably know from running your own businesses. It's nice to be self-employed. It's nice to have your own business. It's not without its own stresses. If I work for the state of Maryland, I have a guaranteed job. I'd have a guaranteed income. I'm not going to lose my job or lose my income. But in a small firm, you're always worried about paying the bills, getting a business in. You know, in 2010, I had a major client who I had a great relationship with for many, many years. Um, they loved my work. I got great results for them, but they brought in a different person to run the company. And he just wanted to work only with attorneys he had worked with where he'd been before. So I lost about 70% of my book of business. And I said, is there anything I can do? He said, no, nothing you can do. You did great work. It's just a relationship thing. He wants to work with people he knew. And that was very scary 
but I kind of learned that things always work out how they're supposed to. So in terms of my personal challenges, I kind of talked about my youth growing up. It affected me in some ways that weren't really very healthy. Part of it was that I became a people pleaser because I had been not well-liked as a kid. Who doesn't want to be well-liked? What's the best way to be well-liked? Well, whatever Pam needs, I'm going to try to be that kind of person for Pam. And then I see Jack and whatever Jack wants me to be, he wants me to be a different, he wants me a you know, tough guy and I try to be a tough guy. And I could be whatever people wanted me to be. And I lost my soul of who I was because I was trying to be who everyone else wanted to be to make them feel better and happy. And if they're happy, they're going to like me. Well, what happened is I kind of lost my soul, but also I've learned you can't make everybody happy. <laughs> you just can't. People are going to feel how they're going to feel. And, and if I was going to act a certain way to someone hoping to get a response back, I often didn't get it. And so, you know, that was a really unhealthy way to live. And I was too focused on other people and what they thought of me. How could I make them happy? How could I get some affirmation back from them? And I realized it can't come from other people. I also had a way, maybe it's because I was fairly intelligent, but it was really a sort of nice arrogance where I wanted to help everyone fix their life. I knew what you needed in your life. I was going to suggest to you, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And instead of controlling my life, I was focused on others. And that was really wrong too. Everybody has their own life and their own journey. And if I can be of help in that, great. But it was a little more than that. And it wasn't in a rude or overbearing way, but it was sort of this subtle, fake niceness where I, I would try to do that. And I guess the other biggest thing is I'm now a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for quite some time. And that was a real problem. Alcohol had complete control over my life. I would say I was going to have a drink and I'd have too many. I'd say I wasn't going to drink and I'd drink. I used to think I was a louse because I drank so much that I was a bad person. I've learned now that I have a disease and I didn't drink because, I mean, at some point I drank by choice. Some point I crossed a line and then I was drinking because I had to. And I don't know when that was. I don't know why it happened. It doesn't really matter, but I lost all power of control over drink and I was truly powerless. It made in many ways my life unmanageable, not necessarily on the outside. I still had a job. I was still a good lawyer. I still had my family, but in many, many ways, other things became more important to me than, than they should have been. So I had the great pleasure of getting sober some years ago. It truly was a miraculous gift from my God, because I tried for a long time to get sober. I mean, I really, I mean, sometimes I'd say I want to get sober and I want to stop drinking and I didn't really mean it, but most times I really did, but I didn't know how to. So I'm very grateful for that. And that when you ask for kind of a key point in my life, that that was a key time in my life, although it's a process, it's not an event or a date. So, you know, if I win the lottery, that's a big deal. We know when that happened. It's not like that. It's a real process of personal growth and change and transformation. And some of those things I really struggled with before, like being a people pleaser, I've lost that. People like me for what I do or who I am. And if they don't, that's really okay. It just doesn't matter to me. It doesn't mean I'm going to be bad because I don't care. It doesn't mean that. It just means I'm going to be who I am. And, and I'm, most people will be think that's a good thing. And if people don't, then that's okay. And I've learned that I have no control over everyone else in my life. 
none whatsoever. They're going to be how they're going to be. I can be as nice as I want to be. I can be as helpful as I want to be. But sometimes I don't get back what I think I deserve. That's okay. That happens. There are people who are unfair to us or people who are unreasonable. That's life. And I've kind of learned too that often that's not personal because that person has their own stuff, their own issues, their own childhood experiences, things that I don't know and can't understand and it doesn't matter. So kind of what I do when I have that situation, I used to really use my brains and my logical training to think I've every right to resent somebody for being treating me the way they did. And I would replay that in my mind. It would get bigger and bigger and bigger and control me much more. And then I'm giving power of my happiness over to someone who wasn't very nice to me. That's kind of stupid. So I've learned now to let that go. I pray for that person because there's something going on in their life. Pray for them to be better and move on. And now I realize that the only person I really need to please is myself and my God and do the best job I can one day at a time. And my sense of happiness and self-satisfaction, fulfillment can't come from somebody else. It could come from playing a really good round of golf, but generally it has to come from within somehow. It has to come from what I'm doing, what I'm experiencing, my own sense of acceptance. And acceptance to me is really the key to everything in life, accepting circumstances as being what they are. So right now we got the 17-year locusts called success in, in Baltimore. People have to accept them because they're going to be here for another couple of weeks. So it is what it is. So I really practice a lot of acceptance of people, places, things, and circumstances. So that's probably a long-winded answer. I apologize for that, if so. But that's kind of my journey. I love that, Gary. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. You mentioned quite a few things that I would like to touch on. One of them being the people-pleasing. It's such a fine line, and it's like, what's too much and what's too little? right? Because sometimes if you do too much, you're doing too much, right? But if you do too little, then you're seen as an a-hole, right? Like you're, how, how did you find that, that balance of the boundary setting and kind of stopping the people pleasing, but still being somebody who's pleasant, but not over extending. It's such a hard line to define. And I'm just curious of how, how that worked out for you. Well, for me, it comes from what's my motivation. Mm. So my wife is an incredibly generous person. I've learned so much from her. She's the kind of person who, when Pam's sick, she'll bring some chicken noodle soup and leave it in her front porch without telling you that she did that. I'm not nearly that good. But I've learned that if I do something nice for somebody because I expect something back, that's people-pleasing. And, and in the days gone by, what I expected back was your friendship, your thank you, and maybe something more, maybe some, and then you don't have a friendship, you have a debtor-creditor relationship. I did something for Pam, so now, Pam, what are you going to do for me? That's not, that's not good. That's not healthy. That's not, that's not a win-win. That's a lose-lose. I did something for you, now you owe me, and if, if I don't get it, I'm going to be upset. So I think it really has to do with my motivation. I think doing nice things for people is really healthy and good, as long as I'm not doing it for some improper purpose, like making myself feel good. Like I should help you out of a genuine, sincere, authentic purpose of being helpful. Not because I'm looking for some inner satisfaction. That makes sense. I'm still working on this 
of the definition of how do you not people please and how do you set your boundaries because it's like you know when people are always asking I'm still struggling with this people are asking you to be part of this and then you want to help them then you get overextended and that's when your life goes <laughs> there's all these all these things you know there's all these things so I, I like that I hadn't heard that before I really do I really do like that and how did you go about setting those boundaries Gary, because I know that's one of the hardest things to do is like first recognizing it that you are people pleasing. And then second, how do you change that? If my inner self is telling me I want to say no, then maybe I need to say no. And one of the hardest things for me is to say no. I certainly err more on the side of doing something for someone I don't want to do. And then maybe having an inner, like, I can't believe Pam asked me to do that. And I'm like, well, I could have said no if I didn't want to do it. So I think that's, it's something that comes from an intuition, a self-understanding of how I feel about the request. If it makes me uncomfortable, then I should say, sorry, I, I can't do that. And that's really okay. I've been working at this for a while. I'm still not there. I still don't have it. I still tend to say yes, and then get a little annoyed. Now I have to do this. Someone asked me to move and I, I just, I don't want to do it. And I say yes. And then I'm Instead of helping out of a sense of generosity, I'm helping and being annoyed. So I think it really comes from my own inner feelings about whatever it is. Interesting. Thank you for that insight, Gary. I appreciate that. And now thank you so much for sharing about your, your journey with alcoholics. I know there's so many people, millions of people that face addiction of some sort, right? How did you recognize that it was a problem? And how did you move past that? Because obviously recovery is the hardest thing, hardest thing to do. Well, for me, it happened when I had the first of what I could identify as being what I call a blackout, which is that I completely forgot something that happened the night before that was very important and personal, and I couldn't remember it the next day. And I pride myself on being an intelligent person. So I was like, how could I not remember that? And it scared me because I knew something was really wrong. It was a combination of that and repeated failures in controlling something I thought I had power over. And day after day and year after year realizing, it finally dawned on me, I'm powerless and I can't do it. And, and how did you move past that? After you had that inner awareness, how did you go on the road to recovery? I'm in recovery and there's a process for doing that that really is very effective. As a matter of personal growth and, and understanding and admission and making amends and giving back. You know, one of the activities I love now is I'm on the Maryland State Bar Association Lawyer Assistance Committee, and we try to identify folks in the legal profession, whether they be judges, lawyers, or even law students who are struggling with any mental health issue. It could be depression or anxiety. And we reach out to them and, and try to help them if we can. That's just a wonderful service. And it doesn't always work because alcoholism, and I'm no expert in alcoholism. I'm not trained in that field, but I have a lot of experience. But it's a disease that tells us we don't have a disease. It tells us disease, we're okay. It's a disease of denial. So all, sometimes that work in trying to help other people is frustrating because most people would know they need it, but they don't see it themselves. So it works for people who, who want a different life. And what I've learned is we can all have this miraculous transformation in our life. What, in whatever way it may be, whatever prison holds us back, we can all break through and become, you know, become the person we always dreamed of being. There's no reason we can't. The trouble is we get in our own heads sometimes and we tell ourselves we're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We don't have enough money. 
we don't have enough education. And we tell ourselves these stories and allow us to not become what we were intended to become, what we were empowered to become. And we can stop ourselves all on our own without any assistance from anyone else. Absolutely, Gary, 100% agree with that. In your experience, say there's somebody listening right now, right? That is either going through it or has a family member who's going through it or a loved one or a friend. What would be your best piece of advice for that person to take the steps to recovery? Reach out to someone they know who's in recovery, who can really understand. I always felt like I was alone. I drank alone. I drank in secret. And so I thought I was like the only one. So I think there are communities of people who have been through the same thing. And, you know, we all know folks. I mean, the nice thing during the years I've gotten sober, it's gone from being a stigma to something that is valued. And uh, when people are in recovery and living a healthy life, folks appreciate that. So folks will know someone who's used to drink and doesn't anymore, and they can reach out to them. And that's the best one-to-one personal contact is the best. Absolutely. And aside from that, is there any other steps that you, that you think would be helpful for somebody looking to break sort of that, that pattern? Well, there are all sorts of recovery centers and programs. And in this day and age, we can Google anything. There are even ads on TV. So there are plenty of resources, you know, plenty of resources out there, addiction counselors and therapists and programs that could be of help. And I know like with the Maryland Lawyer Assistance Committee, our mission is to get the word out to lawyers and judges that it's confidential, it's anonymous, it's private, and it works. And the biggest hurdle, once someone has made the decision they want help, it's not like it's easy, but that's the huge step. Then it works. Right. And I love that program, by the way, that addressing mental health because people think of attorneys and judges and these people are proper. They got everything together. They life is good and that they somehow don't struggle, but they really are human too. So I love that you're part of that organization that kind of takes down those standards, you know, and those stereotypes and kind of says like, Hey, hey," puts it on a human level and, and really breaks it down, which I think is incredible. It's so needed. It's so needed in this world. Wow. Gary, thank you so much. That Your story is incredible. And I love that you're here to serve. That's a really, really big thing. And now throughout your recovery, what has been some of your best moments, you would say? Well, I think I find, I don't know if they're best moments because that seems like, wow, look what I did. Uh, Where I am in life now is I can't ever be at top of the mountain thinking I'm all that. And I can't ever be in the dark valley thinking there's no hope. I have to kind of stay balanced. So maybe my best moment is the fact that I haven't really had one that's like, whoa, now I'm now I'm really top dog. So I think it's a, it's a life of, of just creating some balance. I think um, my goal now in my life is to let people know that whatever prisons ensnare them in their life, whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's food and nutrition, whether it's how they feel, whether it's their finances, whether it's their education, their limiting self-beliefs, they don't have to feel that way. Everybody has a chance in this world to be who they want to be and to be successful. And it took me a long time to learn that because I was always telling myself stories about what I could do and, and couldn't do. So it's really my passion day to help people be free 
from whatever it is is holding them back, whether it's relationship, health, food, wellness. So part of my life now is I'm very big in health and wellness and fitness and nutrition. I did a really healthy nutrition program a couple of years ago, and I've started a health and wellness business with my wife. We're passionate that anyone who wants to be look and feel their best, that they have that opportunity and we help them to do that. And I've also seen, I don't know if you've seen it in your field, we're talking to people on LinkedIn, but so many people aren't really happy about their job. They either feel they're not fulfilled or they're not appreciated or their job is tenuous. What if the company moves out of town? What if they downsize? What if they hire a new boss? Someone else owns their time. Someone else tells them what they're worth and people chafe under that. They're not slaves. They have the right to leave and get a different job. But the reality is once they get an employment setting, they're kind of owned by whoever their employer is. And um, I like people to know that there can be another way. They can have their own business. They can start their own life and they can work with who they want to work with. And they can work with a supportive community of people who lift them and encourage them and nurture them. And so we started this health and wellness business and, and love that there are people who are looking to have their own job, their own business that they own, that they can build where there's no limit to what they can do and help them to be their best selves. I love that, Gary. I love that. And that was going to be my next question to you. You know, what are you up to like in the next six to 12 months? What's happening in your world? Well, I'm still practicing full time. I'm working hard on the health and wellness business because I think a couple of things I learned from COVID, or we all did, is each day is, is a gift. And there really is no guarantee. Like if someone had said two years ago, this is how many people are going to die from this mysterious virus. You're like, that's the craziest thing we ever heard. That's just not possible. It happened. And things can happen anytime. And, and I want to be as healthy as I can for as long as I can. 66, I feel like I'm 46. I feel strong. I feel sharp. I love it. And, and I want to help other people be as healthy as they want to be for as long as they can. But I also realize people learned that their jobs are like, you know, you could invest the money in a gym and put your heart and soul into it. And all of a sudden it's like you're out of business for at least a period of time. And I like people to know that, you know, there could be another way. There could be another opportunity that really works for them, that, could, that they could really build and grow and be somewhat immune to things like that. And it would be another, you know, another nest egg. I know financial advisors always say diversification is important. And I think in your business in real estate, you have kind of multiple streams that you work with that, that fuel your success. If you put all your eggs in only one of them and something happened, interest rates change, whatever, that might be difficult, but you have a balance of different things that you do. Too many of us have only one income stream. And I think most people are really successful, have multiple income streams. So that's something I'm really focused on because I can help people to look and feel better. I've learned that nutritional health, gut health, really leads to mental health. That when I eat what we call the comfort foods, I feel pretty uncomfortable. I mean, I don't feel happy. I don't feel good. But when I eat healthy and I put in my body the right foods, I feel energetic. I feel strong. I feel I've done something good and I can really help people look and feel better. But more than that, just to know that you can choose a business that you can create on your own where there is no limit to what you're able to accomplish, except, you know, however much you're willing to, to work at it. So that's my main passion. 
I'm thinking about starting my own podcast at some point. I'm thinking about writing a book at some point. I may alongside of those or before them start my own coaching business to help people grow and develop because when I have conversations with people, I realize how often they hold themselves back. And I know people like you and I, we can, we can help folks like that. We can help them realize that you can, you know, what you think about can happen. Absolutely, Gary. Oh, I love that. I love everything that you're up to and that you're all about serving others as you have been your whole life, which I think is so incredible, you know, and that you're dedicated to impact. That's absolutely remarkable. And I think you should write your book. You should start a podcast. You should do all of that. All of that, my friend, you'd be an excellent coach. You'd be absolutely fantastic. So I'm excited to see your progress on that. And on that note, here's my favorite question. What would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? That's a good question. Believe in yourself and believe in the miracle. Miracles happen. I mean, your life is miraculous. Like who could have predicted where you would be now 15 years ago? No one. And miracles happen. And if we believe in that great result, it's far more likely to happen than if we think it's not possible. And kind of connected with that is we often judge our future based on our past. I could never do this because I've never done it before. Well, if we always think that way, we'll never get anywhere because we'll never get further than we used to be. So it's important to really have a vision of what our future could look like if we wanted to. Absolutely. I love that, Gary. I love that. Now everyone needs to know where to find you and your awesomeness. So my primary location is LinkedIn. Both LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook are under my name of Gary Miles. But LinkedIn is my main page. And I love to connect with anyone at any time. I'm always open to a connect call with anyone. I love to meet new people and uh, learn where they are and learn if we have any common interests. Love it, Gary. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, thank you so much for being here today. You are fantastic. Your story is so inspiring. And thank you. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode. Oh.